A reading from Acts 15, verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. It wasn't long before some Jews showed up from Judea, insisting that everyone be circumcised. If you are not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. The church decided to resolve the matter by sending Paul, Barnabas, and a few others to put it before the apostles and leaders in Jerusalem. After they were sent off and on their way, they told everyone they met as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria about the breakthrough to the non-Jewish outsiders. Everyone who heard the news cheered. After all, it was terrific news. When they got to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas were graciously received by the whole church, including the apostles and leaders. They reported on their recent journey and how God had used them to open things up to the outsiders. Some Pharisees stood up to say their peace. They had become believers, but continued... You have to... Oops. <clears throat> you have to circumcise the pagan converts. You must take them and keep the law of Moses. The apostles and leaders called a special meeting to consider the matter. The arguments went on and on, back and forth, getting more and more heated. Finally, Peter took the floor. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice. That the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So why now are you trying to out-God God, loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too? Don't we believe that we are saved because the master, Jesus, amazingly and out of an abundance of grace and generosity, moved to save us just as he did them? So what are we arguing about? There was dead silence. No one said a word. With the room quiet, Barnabas and Paul reported matter-of-factly on the miracles and wonders God had done among the other nations through their ministry. The silence deepened. You could hear a pin drop. James broke the silence. Friends, listen. Simon told us the story of how God, at the very onset, made sure that racial outsiders were included. This is in perfect agreement with the words of the prophets. God said it, and now he's doing it. It's no afterthought. <clears throat> he's always known he would do this. So here's my decision. We are not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people who turn to the master 
We'll write them a letter and tell them these three commands. First, be careful to not get involved in activities connected with idols. Second, guard the morality of sex and marriage. Third, do not serve food offensive to Jewish Christians, those with blood, for instance. After all, this basic wisdom is from Moses, preached and honored for centuries now in city after city, as we have met and kept the Sabbath. Everyone agreed. Apostles, leaders, the whole church. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is in my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Really? We don't want to make it difficult? So here, let me make it difficult. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What do you do when the council of wisdom doesn't produce much wisdom? You ever been in a meeting and at the end of the meeting or committee meeting or whatever it was, you walked out, you got in your car and you thought to yourself, there's two hours of my life I'll never get back. Can I get an amen from anybody? There's way too many amens in that crowd. But I understand, I join you. I mean, what do you do when you gather the best minds that you've got, the leading ministers, the most faithful servants that are in the life of the church, and you gather them together for this council that is designed to help them understand the will of God and share that wisdom with others, and then at the end of it, it doesn't produce much of either doesn't produce much wisdom, and it certainly doesn't produce much understanding of the will of God. Now, it wasn't because they didn't gather good people. I mean, in this Acts chapter 15 council at Jerusalem, they gather the best people that they have. Peter's there, Paul is there, Barnabas is there, 
These are the leading voices of the church at the time, and the apostles are there. So, I mean, they gather the best that they've got, and they decide on this issue. And it's not because their decisions don't change the church, because, in fact, it did change the church. It's just that in spite of it all, I'm afraid that the council just didn't produce much wisdom. They produced things to do. They made a statement. They got somebody to write a letter. They made sure that it was read and there were pronouncements made. But just because you do all that doesn't mean that what you've written is wise. Now, the basic conflict that brings about this conference, this council of wisdom, if you will, is pretty straightforward. What's happened is that Jews are leading the church. All of the people that I've just mentioned, they're all Jews. So the Jews are leading the church. But what's happening is the influx of people that are coming into the church. Now, this is after the day of Pentecost. You know, they got 3,000, all Jews that were there. So they had this tremendous influx. But then after that, now that the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas has begun, the influx now is about Gentiles, not Jews. And so the question is, that they're wrestling with is simply this. If you're converted to Christ, do you become a Christian or do you become a Jew? Now, that's a pretty straightforward question. But I need you to know it's extremely complicated. Extremely complicated. Because if you are converted to Christ and by that you become a Jew, these Gentiles have been living in kind of a heathen multi-God uh, world and they have no idea what the Jewish law is. So if they're going to become Jews first or become Jews as part of this, then all of this work has to be done to make sure that they understand all the complications and intricacies of the Jewish law. They're going to have to learn Hebrew. They're going to have to go through some kind of process. We talked a little bit about this uh, last week. They're going to have to be circumcised. If they're older, they're going to have to be baptized. There's going to have to be all these steps that they take and then all this teaching and learning that they're going to have to go through in order to become Jews if the conversion to Christ first and foremost makes them a Jew. They're going to have to learn all about Jewish worship practices. Most of these Gentiles have no idea how to, how to worship as a Jew. They've never been invited. They've never done it. They're going to have to learn all the rituals. They're going to have to learn all the high holy days. They're going to have to go to Jerusalem. They're going to have to be part of the temple. They're going to have to find synagogues to worship in. They're going to have to, again, learn Hebrew in order to understand the reading of Scripture that's being done. They're going to have to invest themselves in the legalism of the law. Do you see how complicated this is? And so this is a simple question, but it's not a simple solution. If they have to become Jews, this is a whole different movement. So there's debate. Because leading the charge that they should become Jews are some Pharisees. Don't you love them? 
the Pharisees. You can't get rid of them. They're a little bit like ants. They just keep coming back. Now, it's not that these were Jewish Pharisees that hadn't been converted to Christ. Oh, no. On the day of Pentecost and following that, there were a number of Pharisees that were converted to Christ. Let's thank God for that. Amen? Amen. We praise the Lord for that. The problem was they were so heaped in what it meant to be a Pharisee that they just took all the baggage with them and brought that into this relationship with Christ. Some of these have been converted to Christ, but they're finding it difficult to leave behind the old ways, the Pharisaic legalism. Boy, I'm glad that doesn't happen in the church, aren't you? Okay, fewer amens on that one. What's at stake here? Well, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that what's at stake here is everything. Everything that Christ taught and everything that Christ did. The freedom of the gospel here is at stake. Salvation itself and what it means is at stake. The mission movement that is in, in filling the church is at stake. And because of the effect of Christianity down through the ages, it's not too much to say that the history of the world hangs in the balance in Acts 15. The debate is how much of the law do we keep in order to be Christian? The problem with the law is that the law is based on works. See, we have a tendency to bring that idea into the church, that salvation is based on works, you know, because I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do, therefore I am a Christian. Laws based on works. It's based on you. It's based on your ability to follow a set of rules, at least in public, to make sure that everybody knows that you're a rule follower. You can earn your salvation. According to the law, you must earn your salvation. Therefore, it's based on what's happening on the outside. Jesus enters the scene and blows all this up because he says the gospel is not based on law, but it's based on grace. Law is you got to keep it. Grace is you can't keep it. It's based on God's mercy and based on God's love because if you can't keep the law, how do you ever get saved? Because God is a gracious God and a loving God, and he gave his son so that you might be saved. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But he gives it freely. Christ's sacrifice for sins becomes the central hub around which all theology and doctrine resides. And all of this is not based on the outside. It's based on 
the inside. Paul eventually writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He makes it clear what this is. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Notice it's by grace, not the law, not legalism, not by following these predetermined uh, things. By grace you have been saved. And it's through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's not on the outside. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's on the inside. And it's not about works. It's not about works because if it's about works, some of you are going to boast, I'm better than you are. So it's not about works so that no one can boast. This is what hangs in the balance in this simple discussion about should we do this or should we do that with those Gentile converts that are coming in. And because of that, the debate becomes rather fierce. It's not that there are a couple of Pharisees that stand up and make this statement. No, no, no. They, they go and they travel. A group of them travel to Antioch. Antioch is north of Jerusalem, and it's become the hub for all the missionary work. It's the, it's the group that's sending out the missionaries to the Gentile world, like Paul and Barnabas. And so they end up in Antioch, where this idea of converting Gentiles is very strong, and they begin to say, no, you can't do that. They've got to follow, they got to follow the law. So a lot of debate comes up, and they decide that they're going to do this thing in Jerusalem, go to Jerusalem and get some wisdom from the apostles that are sitting there. And Paul and Barnabas make this trip, and this isn't a simple thing, you know, jump in the car and go. It takes some time, and they've got to travel from city to city. And they go through this area of Phoenicia and Samaria, and while they're going through this area, they find out there are more people there that are spouting the same claim. And Paul and Barnabas quickly realize that this is catching hold, that this is a, an idea that other people are beginning to talk about and espouse, that if you're going to be converted as a Gentile, you've got to first become a Jew. And so they say, boy, we really need to have this council. And so they gather in Jerusalem at this council of wisdom. And the Pharisees' teaching is widespread. It's growing. And so there has to be a decision because there are two separate poles of theological thought that are going on. And we've got to consolidate this. We have to have one voice. And the soul of the church is at stake. The debate gets tough. It gets pretty heated. Peter stands up and testifies and says, Guys, I thought we settled this. Don't you remember the, about me going to Cornelius's house? See, Cornelius was this Gentile, and Peter would never go to the house of a Gentile. But he'd gone up on the roof to take a nap, and when he went up on the roof to take a nap, God gave him a vision, and the vision was about animals that Peter, as a good Jew, would never eat because, you know, they had dietary laws and restrictions when you were a Jew, and Peter would never eat these contaminated animals and they're being lowered down on a sheet in front of him. And the voice of God says, get up and eat. <laughs> and Peter says, uh, no, thank you. And he said, Lord, I, I wouldn't do that. You know I'm faithful to you, oh, Lord. I obey the Lord. I would never eat these things. And the voice of God comes again. Um, Peter, this is the Lord. Get up and eat. But Lord, you said that we shouldn't eat these. Th this is, Peter, 
Yes, Lord. Eat. Disturbed by this vision, he wakes up fitfully from the nap, only to find that there is this Gentile, this servant of Cornelius, another Gentile, who wants Peter to come. Peter would normally turn that down. But he just had this vision. <laughs> and God says, go with him. And he goes, okay. So he walks into Cornelius' house. It's really a wonderful story. You ought to read it. He walks into Cornelius' house, and frankly, Peter does not want to be there. And he basically goes in, and, and this is the Jeff Freimeyer translation, I realize. But I think when he walks in, Peter looks at everybody and goes, what do you want? It's not, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. This is truly an honor. Peter walks in and basically says, what do you want? I don't want to be here. I don't think this is right. The only reason I'm here is because I had this vision. And I'm not sure what the vision means, but I'm here. So what do you want? And Cornelius says, tell us about Jesus. And Peter goes, here we go. And he goes off and shares the gospel with them. And at the end of sharing the gospel with them, the Holy Spirit falls just like it did at Pentecost. And Peter goes, I think things are changing. So Peter gets up and gives this testimony about this whole experience with Cornelius and says, what are we doing here? Haven't, haven't we already decided this? Hasn't God already concluded this? And then... Paul and Barnabas get up and they go through all the miracles, all the wonders, all the things that have been happening on their missionary journeys, all the stuff that Gentiles are experiencing that up until this point, the apostles and the Jews in Jerusalem thought were simply protected and could only be experienced by Jews. And so now... They're in a quandary. What do we do? How do we resolve this? Because we got this faction of Pharisees that says you got to be this and follow the law. And then we got, wow, we got Peter and Paul agreeing, that's pretty powerful, that we shouldn't put these restrictions on. You would think the apostles would say, this has already been decided. I mean, they've already had to deal with this once. You, you remember when Philip, Philip was, was one of those who was servants in Jerusalem, and when things happened and he got, things got spread out, he went to Samaria of all places and started preaching and teaching in a Samaritan village. Samaritans are not Jews. And he begins telling them about Christ and sharing the, the baptism of John, and people are getting baptized and turning to Christ. The word gets back to Jerusalem. The apostles go, what are we going to do about this? They send Peter and John. Peter and John show up, and they look at what's happening, and they say, have you told them about the Holy Spirit? And Philip goes, well, pfft, no, they're Samaritans. They're not Jews. How am I going to tell them? And so Peter and John tell them about the Holy Spirit, and bam, Holy Spirit falls. This is, this is Acts chapter 6, I think, somewhere 7, something like that. 8, that's right, it's 8. We're in, we're in chapter 15. This happened earlier. Right. 
The Pharisee converts insist, though. Mosaic law has to be fulfilled. Doesn't this all sound familiar to you? Isn't this what Jesus went through? Constantly being corrected by the Pharisees? Matthew 12, just, just, give just a couple of verses. Matthew 12, it's one of any number of situations where Jesus, during his public ministry, is confronted by, by Pharisees because of what he teaches, eats, does. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You remember this? His disciples were hungry, began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. That may not seem bad, but it's a big no-no to the Jews because it's the Sabbath. Pharisees saw this. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. What's unlawful on the Sabbath? Because, you know, they're eating. Which, by the way, makes every barbecue you're about to do today sinful. Just want to let you know ahead of time. This is Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees while he is alive, while he's going through his public ministry about this same ridiculous idea. And now here we are months, years later, and they're still arguing over the same stupid stuff. What do you do when you have a council of wisdom and the council of wisdom doesn't produce much wisdom? Why are we going backward? And so James steps up. God bless James. He has this wonderful solution, verse 19. Let's not make it hard for the new converts. <laughs> and then he makes it hard. I don't understand. I don't understand. Let's not make it hard for them. Let's not make it difficult for them. Let's not make it tough for them. And then he says, oh, by the way, here's what we ought to do. Make sure they keep this, make sure they keep this, and make sure they do this. they got to obey certain dietary laws. They've got to obey at least a couple of the commandments. I don't know what's supposed to happen to the other ones. got to obey the one about having no idols and the one about not coveting your neighbor's wife. That's pretty important. I don't know what you're going to do about murder and thief, but we're leaving that one out. We're going to make sure you keep a couple of commandments and some of the dietary laws. And you guys go back and take this letter and everybody will be happy about it. And the answer is nobody's happy about it because this whole thing was about whether or not they had to be circumcised. They end up for a solution, with a solution, for a problem that they weren't being asked about. God, I hate annual business meetings. Boy, if somebody didn't amen that, there are a bunch of liars in this room. You understand what I mean, though? Where's the wisdom in this? Where's the logic? Where's the definitiveness? Where's the answers? Where's the directive? Where's the thing that's going to help the church do the mission that the church is called to do? What do you do when the council of wisdom that you put together simply doesn't produce much wisdom? I don't know, but the apostles apparently like councils. The first one they had in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 1, when they lost Judas, and it's before the day of Pentecost. They have a council to figure out who's to replace Judas. Why did they have this? 
Did God say, you all gather together and replace Judas? I, I, I simply can't find that in the book of Acts. They decide, hey, this is a good idea. Let's have a committee meeting. Why people think committee meetings are a solution for how to understand the will of God is beyond me. Amen. See, I'm going to get you before this day is out. I just, I'm going to get and so they have a committee meeting, and they choose Matthias to replace Judas. And they do it by a tried and true method. They, they, they choose straws, you know, because that's how you understand the will of God, right? <laughs> and Matthias becomes the other apostle, who, by the way, you never hear from again in the book of Acts. Because God has already determined that Paul will be the 12th apostle. But they didn't wait on that. Had to have a convention. Had to have a vote. Had to have a committee meeting. Had to choose some straws. And then in Acts chapter 6, they do the same thing because there's a problem with distributing the, um, the food fairly. And some of the Greek-speaking widows are not getting the same degree of help and attention that the Jewish-speaking um, the Hebrew-speaking widows are getting. And so they say, well, let's put together a group that will oversee this. And so they come up with the deacon idea, and they get these seven deacons. Now, that seems like a really good solution, and lots of churches have deacons because that's what it says in the Bible. I, my only problem with that is that it's a really stupid solution. I, I tried to put that in as deep theological terms as I could. And the reason it's stupid is not because who the people that they pick. The people that they pick are incredible. I mean, you've got Stephen who gets martyred for the cause and Philip who we've already talked about. You get a lot of really great people. But here's what they do. They say we shouldn't have to um, decrease the preaching of the gospel to wait on tables. And that's the really dumb solution because somehow what they're saying is let's separate preaching from serving. Really? Let's, 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 let's change this and separate the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the idea of serving and ministry and mission in the world. That is not a Christian solution. Those two should never be separated. They should always be together. If you say, well, I don't preach, I'm a servant. I'm sorry. If you're a servant, you preach. And if you say, well, I could never get up there and preach, all I can do is serve. Well, serve and preach. And if you say, boy, I'd like to get up here and preach because that looks really cool. Fine, then learn how to serve because the two of them are never separated. They always go together. So in the book of Acts, they don't have much luck with these councils, but they continue to have them because, you know, like a mighty turtle moves the church of God. We are not apt to learn from our mistakes. You would have thought that Jesus would have, again, solved this when at the Last Supper he picked up a towel and a basin and he washed the disciples' feet and said, you ought to do this to one another too. He certainly wasn't separating the proclamation of the gospel from serving one another. So what does all this mean? 
Now that I've created the problem, how do I get out of this? When you're reconnecting with the nature of God, you have to understand something about how God operates in the life of the church. And please be assured that God is not interested in councils or conventions or consensus of opinion. He's not really interested in you voting. I know I'm causing problems here. Did I mention I'll be gone in a few weeks? <laughs> I'm not sure. And, you know, I, I understand annual business meetings. I joke about them, but I understand them. But I've never believed that an annual business meeting was a way in which we discovered the will of God. If we haven't discovered the will of God before we ever gather for an annual business meeting, we have made a mistake before we ever started These kinds of gatherings tend to produce statements, letters. They tend to produce creeds, compromises, if you will, political actions. They stake out somebody's territory, and they define who's in and who's out. And I have no desire to define who's in the church and who's out. I I'm perfectly fine with God having that control. And that was pretty weak. That would have been a good place for an amen there, folks. It's, yeah, it's too late now. You know, you're just, now you're just pandering. It's just, you understand what I'm saying? I don't determine who's in and who's out. I, as a pastor, I, got, I often got answered, asked the question whether so-and-so was a Christian. You know, is Joe a Christian? Is Susie a Christian? I had a standard answer that I gave. Well, I know I'm a Christian, and I'm pretty sure my wife is. After that, I'll leave that up to God. But by their testimony, Joe and Susie say that they believe, and I'll go on that. Because if they're lying, that's between them and God. Folks, I don't have any desire to figure out who's supposed to be in, who's supposed to be out. I want to preach the gospel so that any and all can come to faith in Christ. Can I get an amen on that one? And you know what? If there is somebody who is a, a terrible sinner, if there's somebody that gets out of jail because they've, they've, uh, they've raped or they've stolen or they've killed, and they want to come to the service, you know what the answer is? Welcome. If there's somebody who is living a lifestyle that is vastly different than what we teach, you don't stop them at the door and say, oh, no, you got the wrong lifestyle. You can't come in here because we're not going to accept you. No, if they walk in the door, you embrace them and say, welcome to church. If this is just a gathering of Christians only, we have misunderstood what worship is. Worship is a gathering for anybody. Last time I checked, we don't have locks on the doors on Sunday. We open it up. We unlock things at the door. You come in and you're a sinner, welcome to the club. We're all here. Amen. I don't like councils and conventions that say you're in and you're out. You can and you can't. You want to become a minister? You want to serve on the board? Sure, we can make some statements. We can say, listen, there's this and there's this and there's this. I understand all of that. 
But that's down the line. You want to come to worship? And you're a retrobate? You're a reprobate? You're, you're a sinner? You're, you're living a terrible life? Golly, that's what we designed this place for. Come on in. I've been where you are. I've walked in those shoes. My shoes, my path was different, but I know what it's like to be estranged and far from God. So if you don't have conventions and you don't have business meetings and all these other things and you can't depend on those, then what do you do? I got a radical solution. (laughs) You don't look surprised. What about the Holy Spirit? How about that? How about instead of having a vote, we have a prayer meeting to figure out what the will of God is? Instead of having to pull straws to determine who's in and out, how about just saying, Spirit, bring them? How about depending upon the Holy Spirit? How about listening to the voice of God? Especially, and this is the part you don't want me to say, especially when the Spirit of God is telling you to do something that you're uncomfortable with. (laughs) See, See, I lost a bunch of you right there, didn't I? Because your view of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit talks to me to affirm what I want. That's when the Spirit talks because God knows I'm right. (laughs) And I got to tell you, the most significant experiences I've had with the Holy Spirit was when he told me to do something and my response was, just like Peter, you got to be kidding me. That? Me? There? With them? I got to love Sean? (laughs) Give me somebody else, God. Most times when the Spirit makes his voice clearest is when the solution is not what you think it is or what you want it to be. You mean I got to go ask forgiveness from her? You mean I got to go confess to him? See, the reason we don't like Holy Spirit leadership is because, well, we don't like more often than not what the Holy Spirit tells us. So it's a really radical solution. Peter had no intention to go to the Gentiles, kicking and screaming. He goes to Cornelius' house and says, what do you want? Paul had no intention (laughs) of ever being the chief spokesman for the church. He had orders to arrest and kill. Paul was a Pharisee. And here he stands up in chapter 15 to speak against the very sect that he has been a part of all his life. You want to know what Holy Spirit leadership is? It really is a radical listening to the voice and will of God, which oftentimes, more often than not, ain't what you think it is and causes you to do things that you don't think you would do on your own. How do you be led by, how can you be led by the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is simple and hard. 
The simple answer is you submit your life to the will of God. The hard answer is you have to do that totally and completely. It's easy to submit ourselves to God. God, I submit to you. Take my life. Let it be. It's hard to totally and completely submit to God. God, if you'll just deal with the stuff I've brought here today, that'd be good. Don't look behind door number two. <laughs> totally and completely. How do you surrender to the Spirit totally and completely? There's only one way. You have to be broken, broken of heart, broken of mind, maybe more so broken of soul. Lord, my righteousness is like filthy rags. I got nothing. I'm a mess. Even when I think I've got it together, I shut you out. Touch me, Lord. Break me. 